I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. Very few child stars make the transition to full-blown adult stars. With the rigors of the life of an actor and the precarious, awkward teen years, most child stars burn out, get out, or fade out. You can't always tell who's going to make the leap. And even people who try don't always find their place as an adult star on the same scale as when they were children. Kirsten Dunst is one of the few who not only was a huge child star, but she's arguably an even bigger star as an adult. On top of that, I feel like she's transitioned from the ingenue lead into a delightful character actress in shows like On Becoming a God in Central Florida, which left us far too soon. 1999 and 2000 were both banner years for Kirsten, as well as placing her into the company of a group of young women who starred in dozens of ensemble teen movies together, but we don't for some reason have a cute name for, like the Brat Pack. The Millennial Mob? I'm going to work on it. Cam, Alicia, what was up with Kirsten Dunst in those two years? Because it's wild, the iconic movie she was in at that time. She just made great choices. I, and yeah. when you say that you know she's a really important character actress, I would argue at this point, because she is in production and she's really leading the way in a lot of shows, like her her character on um, Fargo, which was season two, yeah. which was a real turning point for her, I think, where we were reminded of her greatness, that she's been this great since like, what was she, 11 years old in Interview with the Vampire, 10 years old, yep. I can't remember, very young. Um, I love that we're in this like cursed and dunced renaissance and it's deserved because I think she's fantastic. And if you're talking about those two years of like 98, 99, 2000, holy moly, like dick. Yeah. Uh, obviously bring it on, which we're going to talk about, which is 2000. My favorite is Drop Dead Gorgeous. She is yeah, I'm there with you. 1999. Unbelievable in that. She's such a natural comedian and such a natural leader like she's just effervescent she's and holding her own next to christy alley allison janney ellen burstein and she is like right there matching these ellen like barkin. Of comedy beat for beat ellen barkin thank you ellen barkin matching them all beat for beat it's wild yeah and dominating yeah she's she's yeah. such a um, she can be a background character which she really was because she was such a huge star and still just like steal the show uh so i'm so happy to see that kirsten dunst is like very much behind the scenes and still in front of the camera in a n notable productions, uh, especially around television today. I mean, yeah, she's just an interesting person. Uh, but I also think that, I mean, it's like anyone's career. I think when somebody chooses to do more interesting projects, the dumb stuff yeah. falls away too. You know, like I even think now people might forget that like Spider-Man was such a big God, part I of her career. That, you know? <laughs> um, or like Jumanji, you know, she she was around doing dumb stuff. Uh, Small Soldiers right. coming soon on Hollywood Street. She did star in a Peter uh, Bogdanovich no. film called Cat's Meow where she played my icon Marion Davies and that oh, yeah. probably ingratiated her to me for the rest of like my life. I sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that was like in the late 90s, I think possibly early 2000s. Yeah. And I think you should 
shared Becky the interview that was kind of crazy where I mean, from Interview Magazine, which is mostly coming off virgin suicides, and they're like, oh, that I was such a great movie. One. But they get her to describe her projects, and her projects, she treats them all equally. And one is like a straight-to-video Edward Furlong version of The Crow, and one is like an indie movie none of us have ever heard of. And then one of them is Bring It On, which she's like, yeah, that's a fine movie. And it's like, oh. <laughs> oh, guess which one people <laughs> she did not realize what was the big one, basically. Guess what people are going to be talking about 25 years later. But no one knew that Bring It On was going to be the mega hit that it was, right? Even the oh, studios. No. And a lot of hers are also, the interesting thing, which I guess, I, I mean, I'll get into now, is there's this weird thing in the early 2000s where movie studios were freaking out. We didn't get into it much in the show, but like uh, essentially movie attendance was stagnating, which kind of makes sense. Like it just had reached its peak. Uh, and other than like uh, The Phantom Menace, uh, people were kind of freaking out and like, what do we do? So then it really became all about DVD sales. And I think a lot of these Kristen Dunst movies are huge on DVD. So something like Dick, yeah. which we've talked about God, before, was like a total failure at the box office. And then DVD was huge. And even Bring It On is like, did okay, but was really a huge DVD hit. And that's like Universal was just printing DVDs like Maniacs and making all those sequels. So yeah, I think that a lot of her... Until something like Spider Man, though ninety nine, she has yeah, a couple I mean, of huge hits. Drop Dead Gorgeous, which is yeah, kind of closer to two thousand, depending on how you look at its release. So it's mm -hmm. theoretically the same year as Bring It On, yeah. based on its theatrical release. But I mean, it made her like a darling on the film festival circuit, and it made her, yeah. you know, that's such an important relationship between Sofia Coppola and Kirsten Dunst. Um, that totally and she was a big enough star too that her not being in one movie launched the star the stardom of scarlett johansson yeah. for not being in lost in translation because that was supposed oh, to be oh yeah her. yeah yeah and i also think like it's worth saying that i i think even in 1994 it was she was considered to have been snubbed for the oscar for nomination yeah. for interview well, I, that, that's what I was yeah. I'm like, she got nominated for this didn't she and she didn't which is weird yeah i thought she did too yeah and but i think it was considered e even though it was a child actor i think that was considered a i was obsessed with her because that was such a like great from that film i was obsessed with kirsten dunce like i was someone who would want to read about her in 94 95 i think we are almost the exact same age i can't remember which year she's born but she's probably mm -hmm. the only person i can think of that was a you know, my age as a contemporary that I respected as an artist, like another 12 year old respecting a fellow 12 year old. <laughs> see, and, yeah, and that's yeah. interesting that you say that because I actually, as a teenager, didn't like her and didn't see a lot of her movies until mm. later, including Bring It On, because um, I found her too mainstream, not having seen Virgin Suicide, not having access to those sure. films. I was like, oh, she's a bubbly blonde, whatever, and she's just going to fade away like everybody else. And now, no, coming to her as an adult, I'm like, no, she's amazing. Like, she really does have this incredible yeah. biting sense of humor. Yeah, don't sleep on but Kirsten I think you're Dunst. Right. No. No, yeah. But I think you're right. There are, like, there just are early in her career as many her just being a regular, uh, you know, uh, leading lady, you know, in uh, Crazy Beautiful or, like, Mona Lisa mm -hmm. Smile or... Which uh, that title alone, I'm yeah. sorry. You know what was a real turning point for her? My, my memory's totally jogged. My little, like, Kirsten Dunst fan club uh, membership card is, like, you know, getting getting its usage now, but uh, she was it was a huge turning yeah. point for her. She had a really interesting breakout role in ER, like when ER is at the top, yeah. like number one show uh, in North America. She played uh, a child prostitute, and this would have been like I want to say like '96 because oh, wow. she's slightly older than Interview, but that was like a I feel like she maybe was even nominated for an Emmy, and I think that's really where mm. a lot of maybe 
auteurist directors or indie directors are like, good True. God, look at this girl. <laughs> so I, it's, I, that yeah. role is seared into my mind. Actually, um, I haven't thought about that in 20 years, probably. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, it's now it's now all available to watch. So you can go back and see all your favorite sure, cameos. Sure. All right. Let's uh, get to our first movie today because uh, I want to love Bring It On. I really, really do. And I feel like maybe if I had seen it as a teen, I may have the vehement nostalgia defense of it that's in so many retrospective articles that I've been reading for this podcast. People love this movie. But it's one of those movies that I would really love to have a look at the original script of and perhaps see that version made one day. However, with a franchise containing six movies, five of which are direct-to-video, my favorite title of which being Bring It On Worldwide Cheer Smack, uh, a Broadway (laughs) musical in part penned by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and an upcoming Halloween special made for TV... Unfortunately, a faithful to the original screenplay reboot does not seem likely, minus perhaps some of the bizarro made up black exploitation language that it's supposedly contained. We're going to talk about that. So I will have to love what I can in this movie, like the fantastic performances, of course, Kirsten Dunst, Gabrielle Union, and Eliza Dushku, and the frankly impressive dance sequences and stunts, and an incredibly progressive message about cultural appropriation and female leadership. I could be wrong. Ebert called it the Citizen Kane of cheerleader movies, although that was years after giving it two out of four stars. So maybe it will grow on me. Cam, do you have strong feelings about Bring It On? <laughs> is this something that uh, you were very I mean, into? I think I, I think I agree that the weird thing is that it has such a wildly, like, interesting and nuanced message. The fact that it's not really that much of a competition movie, the fact that it's not really much of a teen romance, but it's this weird kind of like exploration of your own purpose and stuff. Um, Cause yeah, I mean, you can, the plot has a million threads. It's rife with incident, but <laughs> it, really the plot of the film is that uh, Kirsten Dunn's character Torrance inherits this cheerleading team. And it's the most important thing to her. She's not very good at school. Uh, and she knows that this is kind of her future. And then she pretty immediately finds out that the cheer team has, it's like a five-time national champion, and they've been stealing all their routines from a local Compton uh, squad. And then it's kind of up to her to grapple with either the like moral justification of continuing to steal these routines or trying to create their own routine and realizing that they've always been creatively bankrupt and don't really know how to do that. Um, And then I think also just exploring kind of the general uh, structure of cheerleading because they're obviously eventually, you know, the the Compton Clovers uh, can't afford to go to the championship and they are afforded an automatic spot even though they did all this illegal stuff and they do another illegal thing uh, later. So, yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me a lot, uh, weirdly, of Saturday Night Fever and Mm -hmm. the part of Saturday Night Fever that people don't remember which is the fact that like John Travolta has this big realization that the Latino dancers are better than him, but he yeah. still wins the competition. And he's that's what makes him realize he's a rapist and be disillusioned on all life at the end of the movie. Um, yeah, and I find that that's kind of the same thing. Like it's in the end, the movie is not about winning this competition at all. It's just about like having any dignity in what you're doing. Um, Because, yeah, she just gets everything taken away from her, essentially. It's a lot about white privilege. I mean, this is also when you're saying Mm -hmm. Gabrielle Union's uh, cheerleading squad is in Compton. uh, Torrance's, the Toros, 
um, go to Rancho mm. Carne, which translates to yes. um, Meat Ranch meat <laughs> High School ranch. <laughs> uh, in Christ. San Diego. So, I like, as much as, like, you know, the difference, as someone who grew up in, like, Southern California, like, the difference between, like, Compton and San Diego is vast. <laughs> vast, even, like, distance-wise, mm. but also just... Um, yeah, they're quite far apart. Yeah, right? yeah, it's hours. That's the it's one hours. thing this movie kind of makes yeah, yeah, up. it's, like, yeah. hours drive. It'd be like saying that, you know... Oh, I don't know. Like Prince Edward County or Kingston is a suburb of Toronto, which it's not. Sure. But probably people outside of Ontario no. think that. Um, so it is a lot about white privilege and you know the difference between living in central Los Angeles and and San Diego and what that would mean. Mm. Now, from my understanding, in the original script, there was actually more time spent with Gabrielle Union's team that was bigger. She had a mm-hmm. boyfriend. You got to see more of their day to day life versus them just sort of popping up as kind of antagonists, but not really to the Toros. Like it was more of like a half and half film, whereas yeah. now, the current one very much focuses on Torrance and the Toros. And I I get there's like uh, there's also talk of a script that I think is kind of interesting that they talk is like a, a, a comp or a fight between internally in the white school between the dance team and the cheer team mm. which I feel like it's worth saying before we also get too deep into this uh, Alicia just to catch you up Becky and I went to an internationally famous cheerleading yes. school uh, <laughs> um, it is worth saying yeah. uh, world yeah. champions so we literally uh, yes. had to import our football players from other schools because mm. we did not have enough people that wanted to play football but yes, we, they needed yes. to have we a had team. a mixed football what? team yeah, we went to the school from Glee, basically, that had a world-famous cheer team yeah. and uh, and a musical theater <laughs> slash theater. This is that's right. Where this is like, Edmonton? Yeah. This, yeah, it's yeah, a big, yeah. it's yeah. a very big. Uh, they were world champions. They 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 performed a move uh, that was. Uh, eventually deemed illegal because other teams couldn't figure out how to do it safely. I am gobsmacked. <laughs> it was like a, this is yeah. Yeah. parts anyway, of Becky and we Cam's biography. It, I did not know. Yeah. Also, uh, yeah, the Edmonton Eskimos cheerleaders are. I mean, Edmonton Elks. That's right. Cheerleaders are uh, very. Well, fancy I mean, maybe I should catch you both up, a... but I went to um, a very underperforming <laughs> high school, like the worst mm. high school in the town that I went to high school in, um, with probably some of the worst cheerleaders. <laughs> but they loved it i'm sure they loved it but yeah anyway it's just to know that there's like usually there is this big divide between the kind of cheer cheering the 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 words that be is the start of this movie and then the dance which is like the the real national competitions so yeah it was kind of there are interesting previous scripts and i'm kind of interested but i also get the weird thing is like i kind of you hear sometimes gabrielle union talk about like i think that she sees her character as like maybe the more interesting story but i think that the thing is i disagree because they're good they're always good and the only conflict they have is they briefly don't have money so it's like that is actually not there's not much conflict in that story um but i think that's also because they're all the conflict that could be there in a more complex thing like for example she used to have a boyfriend mm -hmm. who understand who at some point was like this is a waste of your time making those assumptions Mm -hmm. was i i think is really interesting there's a lot more in there about someone who possibly does not have a great upbringing i mean it's just a different it's a different film when you focus on the two right yeah but i also think i don't know it, it just seems weird to me that it seems like by the time people were making it it was not that film that that script seems long way before so i don't know there's a fantastic interview with gabrielle union in vogue that i think we all read where she's talking about some of the original language that was in this it was very like sorry mm-hmm. what um like this kitty cat has claws and she's gonna scratch your eyes out like it's something like, like that but done in like off-brand yeah. black exploitation written by a white person it does seem though also part of the development of the script was they got all of the kids to rewrite the dialogue. I think it seems especially egregious because it was obviously white people writing black people. Uh, though she also said that a black writer took a pass on the script. 
So I don't know, but but yeah, he talks about because I mean, one thing we'll probably bring up is the fact that there's a lot of uh, like slurs <laughs> in this movie. It, it'll definitely seem because it's you know it's uh, 22 years old ish. Uh, so you'll be like shocked, but part of it is Peyton Reed said he wanted he got the kids to say like what do people actually say to each other, and he thought that it was important that like uh you know that a male cheerleader would get the epsler yeah, thrown it's at names him. that we call each other uh, in high because school that's... 22 years ago yeah. um it's very accurate in its representation of how horrible we all were to each other no, i shouldn't say everyone but like mm-hmm. this was the kind of you know cultural currency was just like dropping these names it's we're still talking about that today yeah. though i mean matt damon's currently embroiled in exactly that oh right i didn't it's... know this i don't i don't want to <laughs> yeah. know this i'll look it up That's later fair. oh no it's fine he, he he's just dumb. he's a dumb dumb <laughs> it's, it's, he was he was telling on himself yeah it's uh not great but uh yeah but anyway it's uh it's interesting and, and i do think yeah it's because it, i mean there's more than that there's the r word there's everything yeah. but yeah, it, it's it's interesting because there's a great interview with uh, peyton reed and the advocate where he's like oh yeah this is not just whatever it was like we very intentionally were like yeah it's important to show that let's talk about Peyton Uh, Reed actually just for a moment because um he's a filmmaker who maybe a lot of people don't maybe recognize his name but I mean he does all the Ant-Man movies including Ant-Man and Wasp he's doing the new upcoming one and when you look at his filmography you're like okay like it's Jim Carrey's Yes Men his thing like that there's no question Mm. bring it on got him those movies because the choreography and the Mm. way the choreography Mm -hmm. is shot in this film is easily the best part of it it's stunning all of these uh, cheerleaders all these actors went to boot camp to learn how to do all of this stuff. From my understand, the Toros, uh, the Toro team got nine weeks of stuff and then the Compton cheerleaders, the Clovers, got two mm. weeks. And th- that's also because they had actual cheerleaders they had recruited to be on that team so they didn't need it oh, as yeah, much. that team is crazy. Yeah. yeah. So And so when you see what they did, and they needed actual cheerleaders to be able to do what There's they're no doing. There's no stunt doubles, just which wild. is baffling. No. And it's mostly because they couldn't afford yeah. them. Like, this made $90 million at the box office oh, yeah. on, like, a $10 million budget. That's just the initial mm. box office. It's made substantially more since It's then. basically like an yeah. indie movie, which is kind of yeah. interesting because yeah. you don't really think that with Gabrielle Union and Kirsten Dunst, but it's like, yeah, yeah, no, it's basically... And, and I mean, they say that a lot of what makes it special is the fact that they had essentially no oversight. Mm-hmm. It was a movie that they just kind of were... They're like, we're in San Diego, nobody's paying attention to us. And I think it's like it's distributed by Universal, but it was made just by like Beacon or something. Yeah, I think uh, Universal would no have money. snatched snapped it up after seeing like a, a rough cut yeah i don't think they had any production oh, totally. yeah and then you know it was a good yeah. i mean it's such a bankroll for them because then they couldn't make that many sequels to tv shows like it's become oh, totally. a franchise it's really remarkable oh yeah and i think the thing that's weird is peyton Reed, yeah peyton Reed doesn't have a lot of like it's a little hard to be like what's his auteur thing but he's one of the rare people that's like from disney channel who went on, mm. I think, uh, a lot like the guy who did High School Musical and stuff. And I think a lot of what he brings is actually, like, c- just colorful, like, positive filmmaking. Because that's, like, he also worked on, like, the Weird Al show, which I <laughs> wow. feel like is, seems like a real Peyton Reed thing. And, and the Up- Upright Citizens Brigade, which Ian Roberts is in this movie because of that. Uh, and, yeah, it's it's interesting. The, the thing, like, I mean, a lot of people know Down With Love which I feel like yeah. is a pretty good like auteur idea of what he kind of likes to do. And interestingly, he's also 
he's a guy who was tied up with Marvel forever because he famously has this treatment that everybody wanted and never came to pass for the Fantastic Four that was set in the 1960s and inspired by like Beatlemania. That's because they can and never make like, a good ah. Fantastic Four movie or else the world but they're like, will ah, end. What could have been? That, that <laughs> yeah. I think predated even our 2000s Fantastic mm. Four. So that was kind of like his his interesting thing. But anyway, he's he's an interesting guy, but you're right. There's not much to it, but he's a kind of a comedy guy, kind of a colorful, Is that why he plays guy. the mime and, yeah. <laughs> ever yes. so briefly yeah, in this film? So. And the cheerleaders were thinking I mean, about yeah, using mime so. for inspiration, and then this is like silly mime that's on screen for four seconds, yeah. and it's, I had to read later that it was Peyton Reed <laughs> doing a camera. I have to say yeah. some of my favorite moments in this film, which I, I didn't, totally understand why they were there but they were my favorite moments are the ones where it breaks out from the story and just shows you like a weird little vignette like a cheer mom yelling at the judges I think that moment's very funny I love Claire Kramer yelling at a small child she beats her up she pushes her it's like a six year old cheerleader in line in front of her and you think she's beating up another cheerleader I shouldn't say beating up she's like pushing her really roughly and the little girl turns around she's like six and she like gives as much sass as she's getting it's pretty great yeah, actually, you get because I, I know that uh, this was originally developed. Uh, Jessica Bentinger did it as a documentary about the national cheer mm-hmm. championships, and she kind of pitched it to ESPN and stuff, and it didn't go. And then she's like, "Well, I'll just do a fictional treatment." So I think it's yeah, it's weird when they get to that competition. There's some really great stuff, and also the other thing to know, which comes up quite a bit in a lot of the oral histories here, is this was coming out and being in production essentially the same time as a much forgotten and worse movie that was the one I liked, mm-hmm. Sugar and. Spice. which is about cheerleaders robbing a bank uh so i think that i wonder if sometimes this movie was kind of nudged more in the positive teen movie direction because they knew sugar and spice was like an r-rated marley shelton uh, who i think was going to be before it was kirsten dunst in this film it was going to be marley shelton Hmm. and she decided to do sugar and spice instead whereas gabrielle union had auditioned for i don't know if it was the lead role i don't think it was marley shelton's it was a one of the bank robbing cheerleader roles and she was literally told we don't don't see this film having a role for a person of color. I think I think it's uh, I, and even she kind of said I think it's that they didn't want to have a black person. They didn't want the like implications sure. of a black cheerleader being. But involved it does in, like, remind me, Becky, of when we were talking about just a few episodes ago. Um, but I'm a cheerleader, where the role mm-hmm. that would eventually go to Natasha mm-hmm. Lyonne was actually written for Rosario Dawson. And the studio was like, yeah, we sure. don't want a person of color as a cheerleader in this film. Which is just yeah. wild. I don't know. I think there's the other thing that I really want to I, I want to talk about in this um, that I think watching it as an adult, more so than the the very dated, inappropriate slang is um, I think people forget in the, the late 90s, 2000s, how big Girls Gone Wild was and how mainstream it was. Like this was a softcore and sometimes hardcore pornography mm-hmm. uh, direct-to-video series that made someone who eventually went to jail for exactly what you think. Uh, very, 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 like he made made him very rich. But like Brad Pitt, Justin Timberlake, these people were wearing like branded material from that out in public being photographed with these, uh, with Girl, Girls Gone Wild t-shirts and hats. And it's nowhere more apparent for me than in that car wash sequence. That I found that car wash sequence so reprehensible. And I, it was something that made me kind of go, who is this movie for? Because it's very much marketed towards young teen girls, but the sexualization of these young women who are meant to be 15, 16, 17, including by an announcer who starts talking about how hot they are in their short skirts, who's clearly a man in his like mid-40s, 50s, is like... Oh, that's why are you calling attention to that? Like that's you, very weird to do me. Do you think it's calling attention or do you think it's part of the elements of satire? Potentially. I don't know. 
I think that the for me the announcer is just showing how gross ESPN. Yeah, I think that's satire for sure. The other thing is, I'm surprised that you say a bikini car wash is reprehensible because like those. Oh yeah, I know they in in our high school all the time. Okay, the way it's yeah. shot, where it's being shot like a, like a Girls Gone Wild video. That's how the videos that like were, you know, the early videography of our high school parties, that's what they looked on. It was close-ups it on It doesn't boobs. mean I have to like I, it. I, no, I'm not saying you don't have to like it. <laughs> yeah, but re- I, th- I just think reprehensible I'm going with reprehensible. wild. <laughs> I, I want to hope it. that Peyton... Sure. You know that teens have sex, <laughs> No, Becky. they don't. It's a thing that I want to hope that Peyton Reed is Belt smarter. Is I think Peyton Reed's smarter and more finger on the pulse than we were maybe he could be seen as in this sequence like I do think he's kind of showing just how sexualized high school is just how sexualized cheerleading is even though these are you know profoundly talented athletes like a lot of the athletes a lot of the girls um in both teams were like you know I did gymnastics I did this sport I did this sport I was not prepared for how hard cheerleading is um I'm hoping that that's a moment of levity where he's kind of showing the flip side of or like how we all view cheerleaders whereas what the reality yeah. is and is i think it's also worth the the most of the point of that scene is both that jesse bradford comes to it uh kind of till ogle kirsten dunst and then immediately gets trolled by his yeah. own sister who he never thought would do it and she's just like parading in front of him to bother yeah. him and then she also essentially goes like, hey, my brother's here to look at your boobs. Yeah, and it's interesting because Kirsten Dunn's bathing suit good. isn't that revealing in this sequence. Yes. There is no, a hierarchy no, of yeah. who's wearing she, like she's the got string a real bikini. Kid's yeah, suit she's on. wearing like little yeah. like boy shorts and it's adorable. <laughs> it's like the Lisa yeah. one where there's like, there's a star on the yeah. fan. <laughs> yeah, but one of those. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that there's something to that. And like the whole end of the joke is that like Jesse Bradford's like, I wish I had a brother. And she's like, your brother would be making a lot less money at this car. Yeah, I think lines like not yeah. not to disagree with you becky but maybe that gives a little <laughs> but, bit but you're disagreeing with me yeah <laughs> i mean this we have to this yeah, film also I mean, opens with a dream sequence which my understanding and i yeah. have to admit i've never seen any of the sequels of which there are many um they yeah. all open with a dream sequence of some sort of like a cheer gone wrong okay. it's like something that yeah, they've, except for one of okay, them it's something that they've stuck to as as part of the narrative um signature like signature part of the narrative but uh this opens with like a cheer and the cheer uses terms like whore and slut and i was just like what the hell and then i and then you realize she's woken up from a dream where she is completely topless and naked Mm. all of a sudden like her like cheerleading outfit has fallen off her (laughs) during a stunt and the whole like basketball um court can see her naked i feel like you know right from the very beginning if that's how you open your film then you're playing a little bit with fire in terms of how we sexualize young girls but i think peyton reed knows that it's wrong I think it sits just so on the line for me where it I I don't think it's it's in the wrong side of satire for me. And I think that's the problem I have with it is that like it could be really clever and a very interesting point of view on that. Yes, we are sexualizing these young women, but I think it sits too far too. No, we're sexualizing these young women and we're trying Uh, to get. But I also feel like you you have to keep in mind that this is up against like like American Pie. Which I know. Which is still, we shouldn't be making American Pie. (laughs) No, but I mean like in comparison, I don't think you, anyone at the time would have seen this as any sort of sex movie. No, and I agree. I'm actually, I'm I'm there with you. And I think it's just looking back at these movies, which I do feel like this, this, um, the girls gone wild sort of attitude towards young women and the fact of the party and that it's fun and that kind of thing 
very much feeds into a lot of those things like American Pie. It's such a part of the culture at that time that I still yeah. don't think we've totally gotten out of. I think if you turned on the kissing booth or something on Netflix, what you is might the kissing be, booth? Find it reprehensible. <laughs> uh, just a teen movie. <laughs> yeah, and know. at this moment, it's are a, you calling me a prude? A little. Okay. I'm not going to call <laughs> you a prude. Checking. I'm going to say this one thing though. I do find it interesting, and I didn't know this, that you cannot show a midriff in national or even regional mm. cheerleading competitions. Like, and I remember yes. in my in my high school, they didn't, you know, it was it was not a very revealing. I mean, short skirt certainly, but not a super revealing in comparison to this film cheerleading um, uniform. Whereas, like this film, obviously knows that it has to put everyone in a crop mm-hmm. top, and there's a lot of up. There's a couple. There's not necessarily up the skirt shots, but there is. Oh God, can we talk about the one? There's like a character who's kind of somewhat labeled a lesbian, and then it turns out she's not because one of the like the straight male cheerleaders talks about like like feeling her up during one of the stunts. Yeah, yeah. That's a little bit like oh God, like <laughs> there is. I yeah. get what you're saying, Becky. There are moments. I'm trying to not dislike this film though. I no, think it's I just. Uh, I think it's just them trying to be realistic. High school scenes, though. Like there's there's moments where guys are gross, and yeah, that's. That's what a high school boy is like. All right. Well, what I do want to say that I think is a positive thing about this, we've talked about these people as being athletes. And one of the things I think this really did for it was um, if you're watching any of the original um, interviews with Gabrielle Union or Eliza Dushku or whoever, they are all very adamant about their Im- how impressed they are by the athleticism of it and really mm. trying to sell this as a sport, which it is. Yeah. And I do think it did a lot to kind of push that sort of idea. They are really impressive athletes. Yeah. I yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. And that final sequence is we're going to talk about in the next movie. I think one of the worst final <laughs> I sequences. I would agree of with you time. for the next movie. Uh, yep. And this it's is for an incredibly the people, impressive. Cam. It's ballet yeah. for the people. Uh-huh. Are you not of but the people? This one is like, this one actually, if anything, betrays the rest of the film by being so athletic. And the, the start of the film seems to be that the Toros are stealing the clovers like literal chants yeah. rather than their choreography. Because I think they don't trust the audience to understand stolen choreography. Uh, but then the final competition is just high-flying gymnastics and choreography in a way that you're like, oh, wow, this is nuts. Yeah, we learned the difference between uh, spirit fingers and jazz hands. Mm -hmm, I do want to praise this film for its references to Sweet Charity, one of my favorite Bob Fosse musicals. It is super strange for a film that was made for teens to have a Sweet Charity reference in 2000. Mm -hmm. That would have been a movie made for me, Alicia. Yeah. Uh, also, yeah. I think the Sparky character is easily one of my favorite things. His mm. his like introduction, I think, is one of the funniest things ever. What you do is a tiny, pathetic subset of dancing. I will attempt to transform your robotic routines into poetry, written with the human body. Follow me, or perish, sweater monkeys. Oh, yeah, and I love that they're just, like... I love number one that Peyton Reed and Jessica Bendiger are like still friends, and number two they're like, "When are we going to make a bra- or a better call Saul about Sparky Pull?" Oh my god! And it's like, yes. Uh, why isn't Netflix listening to this right now? They and they still talk about they're like they they the two of them would like to do some sort of uh, bring it on twenty years later sequel, which is kind of fascinating, and they might be able to do something interesting with. I want to I want to see like Kirsten Dunst's character Torrance because there's a certain point where. Someone's telling her, you know, cheerleading is not that important. Like, you, you're you such a, a lovely person. You have other things. And her response is, no, all I am. Not all I have. All I mm-hmm. am. 
is cheerleading. And I'd love to see, you know, how much leadership she brings to this film as a character. I'd love to see her like be a Hollywood producer 20 years later, or, like someone who's like oh, revolutionized yeah. cheerleading. Cause I see that in her character and that'd be nice. You know, that would be a nice follow-up. And it's also just wild to think. It, they they all seem to like it. Like, I mean, you see these reunions and stuff where they all seem to be friendly with one another. And, uh, yeah, and it would just be weird to think of, like, the careers of Gabrielle Union, Eliza Dushku, and Kirsten Dunst. 20 years later, are they're quite different people. There's... Except for Eliza Dushku, who seems to be herself yeah. IRL. There's a great <laughs> Instagram post. It was in the interview with Gabrielle Union where, um, I guess it was, like, probably last year, the 20th anniversary. Mm. But for Halloween, she dressed up. Uh, oh, yeah. in her she tried to borrow her original costume from Universal and they were like hell no so she had her stylist <laughs> recreate it really quickly but then the Instagram post she has her little itty bitty daughter yeah. dressed up as the cheerleader too and it's just the cutest yeah. thing and I think it like ex- it's exploded on the internet yeah. which is really a sign of how yeah. rabid the fandom is for this film that first of all Gabrielle Union still looks like she was 27 years old which is how old she yes. was in this yeah. film <laughs> she's fucking 27 well, I mean, in this I, the, movie which if is you look, Kristen Dunst is 17. Fasc- She's actually playing her yeah. age. It's fascinating to see Gabrielle Union's because she has pretty much the same. Like we were saying, Kristen Dunst had this big 99, 2000. Gabrielle Union yeah. has absolutely the same thing. But Gabrielle Union's is all over the place because she's also starring as like a doctor on a TV yeah. show. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. she's in Love and what? Basketball. And- yeah. Yes. Yeah. So she's in Love and Basketball. She's like a high school yeah. student. Yeah. And but then uh, she's a doctor on this TV show. And also that, that TV show was like it's like her and Viola Davis. And you're like, this TV show didn't go. It's like Vivica <laughs> Fox, Viola Davis, Blair Underwood, what? Uh, Gabrielle Union, Maya Rudolph. You're oh like, my wait a minute. This, this? Is, this is not the most it's uh it's called city of angels i think and it was like a hospital show maya wow. rudolph that's like pre-snl yeah maya rudolph was the nurse it's like steven created by steven bochco it's like what, what is what is I this mean, show I, is yeah. he the one that made cop rock <laughs> yeah i mean that might have heard that might have been uh that might have yeah. been sure. where robert morse They've got Robert Morris for you, Alicia. Oh, Madman slash how to get ahead in business. Yeah, anyway, it's just this crazy show that I'm like, this ran for one season and it's got perhaps the future stackedest cast that they didn't realize they had. Okay, I think that's probably where we should head into our next film, uh, which is going to feature Zoe Saldana. Talk about more wonderful black actresses who would go on to do really cool stuff, being parts of huge, huge franchises. So when we come back, we're going to look at, of course, a ballet movie that tackles the strife of adolescent dance at a prestigious academy. The commitment to realism extends to a minute and a half long montage of breaking in point shoes. It's center stage coming up after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When I was growing up and at arts high school, in fact, as we mentioned, the same one Cam attended, I had a number of friends who were seeking careers as professional ballet dancers. And every single one of them had some sort of eating disorder, smoked like Howard the Duck billboards, and had feet battered beyond belief. But man, they love to dance, and they made it look so effortless. So although the movie Center Stage has a number of elements that are very fairy tale, a lot of the actual ballet dancer life is pretty bang on. Uh, this seems like an ultimate 2000s sleepover movies, solid dancing, relatable stereotype characters, attractive teenagers, and a non-threatening sex scene for extra titillation. And like Bring It On, Center Stage launched a bit of a franchise. There are two more films in the series, and a TV series is in development development as of late 2020. Alicia, let's talk center stage and ballet movies in general, of which I know you have opinions. <laughs> I mean, my opinions, I love them very much. Um, and I actually didn't grow up with center stage. This is my first time watching it. So it's kind of interesting coming to it, having um, really focused on any possible ballet film from the silent era to now. Um, I'm obsessed with and, and watch a lot. The Red Shoes is the Red Shoes is definitely um, one of my you know, all-time favorite films, so it's interesting coming to this film. Um, the plot, there's not much of a plot. This is almost like, I mean, if you, if I told you there's a film called Center Stage from the year 2000 that took place in New York, you could probably tell me what the plot is. It has, you know, it's reminiscent of a film like Fame from 1980. So we have this very um, stunning, semi-talented, aspiring uh, ballet dancer who auditions for the American Ballet Company, uh, the ABC. This is um, a ballerina played by real-life ballerina um, Amanda Scholl. Her character's name is uh, Jody Sawyer, and Jody Sawyer's definitely, the name is a reference to Peggy Sawyer's character in 42nd Street. So there's a lot of references in center stage to the dance films that came before it. Um, She makes the company... There is a parallel sort of storyline that is Zoe Saldana's. And as you mentioned, Becky, this is a luminescent Zoe Saldana, who, while not a trained ballerina, did have dance experience. Um, and she, pulled, she I mean, she, in the film, to me, I, I'm i not a dance expert, but I would have thought she was an absolute like life-trained ballerina. She really can. There's only two people here who are not like trained, trained ballerinas. Like this yeah. thing is actually full of like Real top-notch dancers. ballet yeah. dancers. Yeah, Zoe Saldana and then um, Susan May Pratt, who plays Maureen, who is the best dancer at the school. Who the hell are you? Um, which is interesting that like all the shots that they do of her are just arms because she can't do the feet stuff to the same level everybody else yeah, is doing. Yeah, true. Um, and she is the only person of color in this uh dance school to have won a scholarship um and you know as in the same way that we kind of talked about bringing it on center stage has moments where it's discussing the lack of representation in american ballet i mean worldwide ballet uh in general especially for um black women but it never really like hits at home as much as i wanted it to so we get this character that zoe saldana plays eva who is angry and doesn't fit in and is the rebel and you know shows up late for class and is always kind of has these snide remarks and it's widely remarked that she has this bad attitude she's like the bad ballerina but it's never really said why and it's you know we know why i mean obviously she is at a huge disadvantage both in her upbringing as a ballerina and at this company saying use what you have and turn up jesus she heard you 
Excuse me? She heard you. We all heard you. You don't have to speak to her like that. Anyone can see she's working her ass off. That's enough, Miss Rodriguez. The company itself, the ABC, is definitely in reference to the real company, which is the American Ballet um, Theater, which is, I think, 80 years old at this point. And a lot of the lead dancers, including most of the male characters in this film, were actual uh, dancers from ABT. And some of them would even go on to become like the artistic directors of ABT. And I think as of like a couple years ago, we're still there. Um, so it's really, if you know ABT and its history, this is like a film that really poached a lot of those performers um, and used them to a really great, to a great extent. I mean, the, the dance sequences in this are incredible, except for I'm going to allow Cam in a little bit uh, to talk about that. Mm. That, <laughs> oh my God, that finale, which is utterly ridiculous. Um, and the thing about Jody's character, the lead, the blonde, let's say the lead blonde, is she's not very good. Like she has the heart kind of, but her technique isn't really there. They say she has bad feet, um, they bring up that she doesn't have the right body, which is insane watching this film. Uh, and she has to kind of find her own, you know, like she does a couple like modern dance classes at what looks like the Y, although it's clearly not the Y. And she kind of finds her like, I don't know, her funk and that's what she brings. She gets her groove. Yeah, I mm. guess. I mean, this is a very formulaic film. It's a it's a fantasy. It's it's got elements of a fairy tale for sure. I'm much more interested in Eva Eva's character played by Zoe Saldana, which does luckily get this kind of fairy tale ending. But if you love ballet, I do think that this is the film for you. And I understand why this was so popular in my high school. Um, I grew up doing ballet and then quit when I was. 15 and then had no tolerance for ever watching anything to do with ballet until probably my early 30s. So, like, and so is that PTSD? Yeah, is that why? I mean, I was never that good and it was never to the extremes that you see in this film where you see eating disorders. I love that you bring up the, you know, 10 minutes, or not 10 minutes, like a full two minute montage of breaking in point shoes, which is absolutely something I remember despite barely being in point shoes before I quit. Um, you know, there, it really is a film made by someone who understood dance. And that makes sense when we think about this director um, who, you know, is has been the artistic director of the London Theatre, like really new dance, new wide scale productions um, and knew how to, I think, film them. So interestingly, this is an Amy Pascal pet project. She commissioned mm. this because she wanted a teen dance movie on their roster. And so she got the treatment for it. And like, it was very much curated to be exactly what you see. Like stereotypes, very relatable, great dance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. And Carol Heikinen, I believe is how you pronounce her name. Mm. Um, she, I mean, you look at her her writing history and she wrote Empire Records, yeah. right? So like she understands like, here's a group of different teens. Here's how you identify the rebel who was bald and you know the cool girl and so like she already had that kind of basis to it this is it looks like the last movie she wrote and was like involved in mm -hmm. in the film industry um nicholas uh heitner is an interesting filmmaker he got pulled in a lot because he does a ton of theater and a ton of broadway mm -hmm. um and does fancy movies like history it's boys his, and it, Madison yeah, it's King about George. the only non uh play adaptation he's yeah. ever done yeah N yeah national theater is like his big his one. pedigree is like his mother was like renowned like she thinks she's like a dame like she's incredibly important for as mm. a philanthropist for 
um, British theater going back to like the 1940s or something like that. Like he's born into this. He directed the Mad King George. Is that the title of the film? Yeah. Yeah, Madness Madness of King George. George. Um, I was surprised, really surprised when I looked at his filmography because it's quite impressive. And I just, Mm. at first I was like, how did this guy get this project? But then after watching it with its allusions to 42nd Street and, you know, it's, it's really a theatrical kind of tableau based film um makes sense very much shot like theater like especially like i think that's my one issue with the shooting of the ballet is because ballet like a play is very theatrical that it's hard to get in there and like really show what the experience is like because of how you're how you're shooting it stop me if i if you think i'm wrong i think i think you're right and i think what this film pulls off really well is you can be a principal dancer and one of the most you know revered of stage performers but it doesn't mean that's going to translate to film um, in terms of facial gestures in terms of how you read on camera in terms of your body proportions mm-hmm. what this film did really really well is these are you know really exquisitely trained dancers who have been doing this all their young lives most of these people are very young that look great in film that could actually pull off for the most part you know the dialogue when they're not dancing the the you know yeah. very tame sex scene the the bar oh, scene yeah. where they're all getting too drunk or you know <laughs> it's it's interesting i know um, amanda Scholl, who plays the lead character really talked about she was so comfortable in the dance she came from the san francisco ballet school she was so comfortable with the dance stuff but then like the scenes where she had to like tell off the guy who like oh, stood yeah. her up and she's not great but that's okay. No. It's a teen film. This is a teen. It's kind of weird who is great and who is not great because I feel like, I mean, obviously, like you say, Susan May Pratt. I think that she also has the heaviest lifting as an actor, and she was a pretty known actor. If you look, she's like really the like third lead of every teen movie around this era. Because I don't want to be a ballet dancer. Yes, you do. You always have. No, mom. If this were what I wanted, I, I wouldn't be as unhappy as I've been. And I, I'd, I'd have friends, I'd sleep well. I wouldn't throw up half the things that I eat. You watch your weight, there's nothing wrong with that. God, don't you hear me? I'm telling you I'm unhappy and sick. I can't do this anymore. But weirdly, like, I think that Ilya Kulik is very good, yeah. the figure skater. Yeah. I think Ethan Stifel's pretty good as, like, a jackass. He's huge and in the dance And he's just a ballet know? dancer. Yeah. yeah, like, he was the biggest ballet dancer in the cast. And I think he weirdly acts circles around the other male lead. He really loves his own. He, lo- he was weakest. a motorcycle enthusiast in real life. So, I mean, okay. we are introduced to his character on a motorcycle. <laughs> the motorcycle, I'm not gonna, I don't want to spoil it so for people who haven't seen it, but Cam yeah. will talk about how important a motorcycle is God. for this finale. <laughs> What I also love is the fact that Ethan Stifel, as well as Sasha Radetzky, who plays the, I believe I'm pronouncing his, his name right, both of their wives are also in this yeah. film because they oh, are they future are wives. Ballet dance. Future wives. Future wives, yeah. yes. Fiancés and then future and wives. And those two in particular have known each other since they were six, is my understanding. Because yeah. oh, they've been dancing that long in the same school. So there's a real community here, a New York-based community of dancers um, that I think that, that charisma and that sort of chemistry does play into it does come off to me at least when i'm watching the film it doesn't work entirely but it's it's there that leap off is quite possibly one of my favorite things that we've watched all season the leap off is Mm. delightful and seems like only something two ballet dancers would come off uh, come off are you how how would you compare it to the backflip off from the flip off yeah i mean that to me is the kind of (laughs) 
they didn't do it outside of burger joint. So <laughs> no one flipped over. No one leaped over a convertible. So I don't know, Becky. That flying is always yeah. gonna have my heart for that competition. Because they're both actually doing it, which is what I think True. is so wonderful about <laughs> it. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that there's a reference here that ended up getting missed because originally the Sasha, the uh, character played by Sasha, is meant to be played by a Latino dancer, and they had mm-hmm. three Latino dancers they were going to use, um, and they went with Angel Corella, who ended up injuring. Now, there's two two things people say in any of the oral histories. Mm-hmm. One is that Angel hurt himself and was unable to do the film. The other is that he was spoken to about it, but they didn't decide to go with him. I'm going to quote this here by a producer. He said, it seemed to occur was a script issue that we all, including the studio, felt a kind of in the moment. It was more fun and cool to have a boy next door in the role. And I'm like, mm-hmm. at what point is that ever more fun and cool? But it seems yeah. like having a Latino actor in that role makes it almost West Side Story E. Yeah. I also think it might distract from the Zoe Saldana plot, to be fair. honest, to have like multiple racial I aspects. Fair. I also think it at some point, and they kind of talk about, I think, in some of the examinations of Zoe Saldana's character, is like it actually is maybe too fantasy y of a diverse cast already, mm-hmm. even with two uh, like black and like mixed race people. Uh, I also th- thought it was quite interesting because like Zoe Saldana is Dominican and, and this is like the one time you really see her play a Dominican woman, yes. which is kind of interesting. I mean, she does now and again, but it's, uh, I mean, Zoe Saldana also famously, she's like, <laughs> all the good roles are science fiction. So she's so often a, an alien. I think stuff, it's a, but, which uh, is fine. She is in three yeah. of the biggest franchises I mean, on yeah, the planet. She can she's buy fine. and sell me. So <laughs> go, go off. It's, it's interesting because I was kind of looking at the history of, um, black principal dancers up to today because when this film was made in 2000 like something like abt which is the you know the theater it really takes place in they didn't have a black principal dancer until 2015 it would take 15 years after this film for misty copeland to be the first um african-american principal dancer in a u.s uh in a u.s like dance company in the one of the leading dance companies it's the one, uh, like the same article kind of saying that it was un- kind of unrealistic that she wins her role at yeah. the end was saying that it was they were very lucky that there was a fairly high profile uh, black dancer to double her. Right. Like essentially that if it was a different time, like I think that they were saying if it was two or three years earlier, they would have had they would have struggled to find a professional black ballet dancer of the level they needed to double. Yeah, I mean, it's only now that we're starting to see dance companies <laughs> wake the fuck up and make... Mm-hmm tights and shoes that are black skin toned mm-hmm. based you know prior to like five six years ago they had to be custom made or they you had to like you would, which would mean so much money like dancing is like we're talking about cheerleading so expensive and mm-hmm. so the idea that you would have disadvantaged dancers then have to cust get everything they have custom made they can't even go to the already insanely expensive yeah. dance supply stores I mean, that's something that, you know, this film isn't really talking about at all. It has the a black character, but it's not mm-hmm. really looking at the, I wish it had a and little bit more. she's the underprivileged one, but they kind of don't deal with the financial aspect at all. They do mention she's on a, like, it's funny in the bar scene where she's telling mm-hmm. her friends that she got in. They, she does say, I think there's a nod that she has a, a full ride. So that explains yeah. why a black girl would be it, at this school yes. when she clearly and can't I mean, afford it. it yeah i think that they also weirdly have her shrug off it's not that she has a chip on her shoulder it's also that she's like whatever and that's like i even think that person would be incredibly driven like she would have to be incredibly driven that's actually kind of the weird thing to me is 
they they play it like like Peter Gallagher and Donna Murphy kind of say like, well, you were the best where you were, but now you're here. But weirdly, they don't even seem like the best where they were. Zoe Saldana yeah. kind of does, but yeah. but especially yeah, her and the lead, they're you're like. Why aren't you better? <laughs> well, this was something I thought was really interesting is that they actually wanted her to be even worse. And Nicholas Heitner mm. was like pushing her in that moment when they're yelling at her yeah. about her feet. He, he was like, turn them out more, turn out more. She's like, yeah, I yeah. would not have gotten into this if no, that's no, what my yeah, feet looked yeah. like. Like it's, a... it's like, yeah, the minutiae at this point between perfection and not quite good enough is so mm. limited, right? And keep yeah. in mind, this is yeah, high school. A, uh, this isn't, you know, yeah. dancers, like something like fame. Although I think there's some maybe high school. This is most of these dance films um, are people mm. in their early 20s they're young yeah. youngish but these are like 17 year olds these are people who and this yeah, never yeah, shows yeah. in the film but they would have had to be doing their studies as well like go to math class with all the other dancers mm. go to chemistry go to whatever high school thing you do while then also doing this in the insanity of trying to be good enough so that when you graduate from the school you get snatched up by a, a dance company from somewhere in north america I do think the cleverness of having the workshop and the conceit of like, this is what's going to get you a job that you're going to be plucked from this, which is the reason why you want to go to the school, because you have this opportunity where everyone respects the quality of the dancers and you will then get work from there. But the fact that it ends with the dance number that it ends with, yes. Cam, Cam, Cam I know it. you oh want to get God. into this. Well, it's like, uh, I, <laughs> I mean, uh, like sigh. It, it's just... <laughs> I don't know. I, number one, it's just dumb to me to have a ballet movie be like, and to be fair, I, like, I, I'm not the biggest ballet guy in the world, but I've been to, like, you know, experimental ballets. I, I've I've sat at, like, la, 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 human steps. I get it. And this is not that. So it's like they they want to make Ethan Stifle's character be this, like, forward-thinking bad boy uh, ballet guy. The, the bad boy of ballet. I mean, the, of course, the most wonderful fact about this is there's this subplot of him sort of being the, like, arm candy of an older woman, and then there was a real-life scandal where he was the arm candy of an older woman. <laughs> uh, like, uh, like a rich benefactor, he essentially was pimped out, question mark, uh, and willing to do it, and it was, like, in the New York Times. Cooper, how you doing? Can I tear you away for a minute? There's a woman here whose husband just died, leaving her $200 million, and she adores you. Excuse me. That was beautiful. Let me introduce you. Now, why does that feel wrong? Oh, it's just a hello. It'll be great for the company. Jonathan! Steve! Well, if it's good for the company. I mean, you know me. Team player. Yeah, so they make... It's a, this conflict between him and Peter Gallagher. Am I the only one who thinks it is wild that Peter Gallagher, who... Big Peter Gallagher mm. fan, very attractive Fair. man. But the fact that he tells a twenty-year-old, "I got the girl," is like the weirdest thing. Yeah, to me. I mean, it's 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 an odd conflict, but I guess it's the kind of conflict that I guess you get. It's also kind of weird because you know you think of like. I guess they, I'm trying to think of <laughs> like a, a, a dance star major domo, and I guess it's like uh, Natalie Portman's husband, Benjamin Millipied. Like, <laughs> I guess they're kind of like the hot older ballet guy. But anyway, it's weird because they have this fight, but then the, the thing he chooses is not really to uh, do a, an experimental ballet. What he chooses to do is mix modern dance with ballet, which is like, well, that's not ballet, dude. <laughs> Uh, and like, cause, cause Cooper also enjoys going to these Y classes where he gets to wear a headband and just, uh, enjoy dance, which like, it totally clicks. It clicks, it clicks, it clicks. And then they just make this stupid, stupid <laughs> ballet where he drives a motorcycle on stage and it's supposed to be the, the toast of, uh, the, the town. And like, technically, it's, again, they're right? doing, 
That yeah, was a yeah, weird, yeah, generic like dated reference. I mean, the music, the music throughout is a real chef's kiss of early 2000s. This is a fascinating movie because it's like right before 9-11, New York. So that's kind of fascinating. Sure. It's got like just banging Jamiroquai soundtrack. <laughs> like, Which, okay, Napoleon Dynamite yeah. is totally a reference yes. to this, right? Like that's, uh, or is it just, oh, yeah. 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 just a great song? Okay. Yeah. And I mean, so the, it just kind of is interesting because you would think that this giant epic dance at the end, and Zoe Saldana's dance is kind of the dance that you would expect to be at the end. It's which Swan is like Lake, a very right? Technically, Am I crazy? Yeah, it's just Swan, Swan Lake. Lake. It's, I, yeah, yeah. But it's technically beautiful and proficient and whatever, and, and she kills it, and everyone's like, oh, she'll be, be so beautiful. Whereas this goofy ass <laughs> so tearing her dress off and it, suddenly it's red which is, is the real one. Which they had to do that so many times. Oh, I and can't imagine. To be fair, that is a and... fabulous effect, and yeah. I like that they, they had the costume designer being like, I'm so proud of that. Yeah, but, this like, film also again, won a choreography award amazing. from the American Choreography And it Society. should. And like, I, do, I don't want to shit on the choreography because no, there's absolutely nothing nothing wrong with what they're doing. And I think that they tried very hard to conceptualize this. And I think that the thing is, is real experimental ballet is probably pretty dull on film. Yeah. And you're also trying to make a movie that's <laughs> a mass appeal. So I, I get it. But I'm sorry, yeah, Ken, have you ever so seen corny. Van Vender's Pina? No. <laughs> oh, I have. Yeah. Peanut, pe- those were actually pretty cool. I take cool. offense and I, you know, that experimental ballet is boring on film because I don't uh, believe Let that. me tell you, Vim Vendors knew what to do, which was make it 3D. <laughs> uh, <That's true. laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, and I get like, I think the appeal of this movie is weirdly like not even the, in the dance and not any of this, but it's just kind of like a chill, like hangout yeah. movie for girls. It's, like, a, it's a very, movie. it's an incredibly long movie that goes on forever, but you like the it's characters. They're nice to hang out with the conflict. I mean, I guess the Susan May Pratt's eating disorders may be a little harrowing, but that's like the most harrowing conflict. And in the end, everybody gets what they want. They're all happy. Maybe not her mother. <laughs> that's the only one that's she's the real villainess of this film. Yeah, yeah. But you get you like a what? full Donna Murphy story arc, and she's just hanging out in the background. I don't know. But you know what? I am grateful for the fact that I'm watching a teen movie that is talking about, hey, so you devoted your entire life to something, but hey, guess what? Yeah. You don't want to do it. Is making you miserable. You can stop. That's okay. It's maybe more interesting than Bring It On because, like, yeah. Bring It On never really plays with the idea of like, oh, perhaps I should not be a cheerleader at all. Yeah. Like, perhaps, perhaps this is a something that is rotten to its core, and I shouldn't be involved. Where I guess Center Stage also exposes that perhaps this is rotten this to really its core. This really spoke to me. But they're this, like, we love this it. Spoke to fifteen-year-old <laughs> Alicia saying, I don't want to fucking do this anymore. I hate it yeah. with every ounce of my heart. Oh, totally. And that's okay. You can leave. And I mean, <laughs> I I actually know a lot of people who the interesting thing like got to this level of ballet and then took the door yeah, out yeah. and are and are happy with it because yeah we again uh, the other part of our school is we had an arm of the national ballet school Jesus. that was like the 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 pipeline to send you there when you were you know 16 through 18 yeah. and yeah I, I don't know anyone that continued on I mean, with it yeah the eventually everyone hits that wall. Be like 98 oh, yeah. percent well and yeah. even then your life expectancy as a ballet dancer is to like 30 maybe sure. 32 if you're lucky like do you mean career ex- do you mean career or life career yeah <laughs> yes career <laughs> You that like, is your uh, life you die at still alive question mark yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean if you look at Ethan Stifle he looks like he's l- lost his mind yeah, <laughs> yeah I couldn't believe I mean yeah Google that photos haircut, of that Google him Google him he looks him. like uh, Monty I mean, Hellman or not Monty Hellman um, yeah he looks like Hal Ashby <laughs> Yes, yes, he does Hal look like Hal Ashby. Ashby. I mean, dancing while directing Harold and Maude, it would look like Ethan. He looks Stachel. confident, and I'm sure he's got a great body. But yeah, that haircut is wild. 
Yeah, I liked this. The, uh, the one thing about the finale that really spoke to me is I think, and I could be wrong, I'd be curious if there's like listeners who are very into ballet as well, but uh, I, there's a lot mm. of references to the Red Shoes, sure. the Powell and Pressburger um, film starring Maura Shiro, who was a, a real Scottish ballerina, and Ludmila, Ludmila Cecherina, who was um, a French ballerina of Russian descent. Uh, which is a great example of a film from the 40s that actually shot real ballet. Um, it didn't just like hire actresses to play ballerinas, but mm-hmm. it was very much considered like one of the best, I would say, I mean, how could it not be the best ballet film of all time? It just kind of is. But all that redness, even in the makeup, I mean, the makeup that Maura Shearer wears in the red shoes for the most insane dance finale, I think, in any film. Um, yeah. It's, it has very distinct uh, eyeliner that the Amanda Schul character has little hints of. So I'm seeing a little bit of the red shoes. I'm also seeing a little bit of the, a film that I think is fascinating called uh, White Nights, which is 1985. Oh, yeah. um, it's directed by Taylor Hackford. And it stars mm. um, Mikhail Baryshnikov and Gregory Hines great, great and Helen Mirren actor. and Isabella Rossellini. <laughs> like it's sure. I would really encourage it's people where, to see it. It's like if Center Stage had um, espionage spies, and a plane yeah. crash <laughs> and <laughs> FBI agents. Yeah. You would have, um, or should I say, CI agents? You would have White Knights, which is. Uh, yeah, a, a film not many yeah. people talk about. Mikhail Baryshnikov, good actor. He's a great actor. And actually, I yeah. actually think the Coop character is designed after Baryshnikov, specifically oh, yeah. and generally he's in his costuming look. and his like leather jackets, mm-hmm. but also specifically in White Knights, where he's this sort of renegade rebel ballet oh, dancer. sure. And he, he teams up with a tap exactly. dancer, which is exactly what Cooper would have loved. Yes, exactly. So as we exit the center stage, uh, this is the end of season two. So um, let's just have a quick chat briefly. What to, If there is like one film from the previous season that was like a surprise to you, or you're like the one that was like, this is the one people should see. If you see nothing mm. else, what do you guys think that movie was? Alicia, let's start with you. I this The film that was most important to me, and I don't want to say it was surprising because I knew I was going to love this filmmaker, mm but I am reserved in recommending everyone see it, uh, is Seven Beauties, the Lena Vermeuler. Yeah. I would say listen to the podcast potentially before diving into that film. <laughs> sure. But it's something that you know we did for the podcast with guest Emily Gagné of Hollywood Suite, where I then like spent many months over the spring and summer just watching every Vert Mueller I could get my hands on um, as a result of doing Seven Beauties for the podcast. And that was paired with The Passenger, which is also a real revelation. Um, that would be that would be mine. Cam, how about you, my love? I mean, uh, the one that I'm constantly pushing and that is uh, coming to Hollywood Suite in, next, uh, in a couple of months when you hear this is uh, Cooley High, yeah. which mm-hmm. I think is... It's being reevaluated and brought back, and and I think it's just such a good and important movie, and it's just fun. It's a a fun. I can't film. wait for us to be in Hollywood Suite, and Carolyn Morissette was so great on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I wish I could have been on that episode. She was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, my otherwise my dumb one is I love Cemetery Man, yeah. <laughs> but I think it gets it gets enough love in the horror community. <laughs> but if you're not a horror person and you just love Rupert Everett, uh, yeah, Italy, Man's Italy great. for the win. Three out of four films were Italian. Mm. That's right. Um, I'm going to have to go with uh, Love and Basketball as like a big, I'd never seen it before and I loved it so much. I went back and watched Mm. it twice and it was really awesome to talk to Rad about it because Rad is like very vocal and expressive and he was super stoked. So I feel like it was a good yelly episode of Joy. I haven't listened to that episode yet, but I'm imagining knowing Rad as well as I know him, he was probably sweating and gesticulating a lot on the Zoom. (laughs) Just a little. He's always amazing. Uh, 
and I'll say, Becky, if you haven't seen Beyond the Lights, if you can get past the Nate Parker of it at all, it's the other uh, Gina Prince Bythewood romance, and it's quite I'm so excited, quite charming. I know what I'm doing this weekend. Uh, I'm also going to be prepping season three because season three is coming up Ooh. very, very soon in the next few weeks. Um, what are you guys looking forward to for that one? I mean, I guess uh, to, to reveal, uh, it'll be coming in October, and we're uh, shocktobering it hard, uh, including a lot of uh, favorites for for me, including one I've mentioned on the podcast before. What's the matter with Helen? <laughs> Which is uh, don't wa- watch it, but don't look at the poster because they spoil the ending in the poster. It's a psycho, a classic, psycho bitty a classic film. Weird thing. I got to say, man, that whole psycho bitty thing, I've been already going down a rabbit hole of research being like, oh, "Oh, this is a genre I love. To be paired with Who Slew Auntie Rue, which is a great time. Which both have Shelley Winters in them, so I'm sure we'll get into her. She's an interesting human being. Uh, And also, I will say that this is the first time I'm always trying to get John Sayles stuff involved, and we're getting him for the first time with uh, Alligator, (laughs) which is uh, a great (laughs) script by him. I love his uh, B-movie script. I'm so excited for that one. How about you, Alicia? What are you stoked for? Mouse Hunt. 1997's Mouse Hunt is (laughs) the film of the pandemic that really has carried me through, Um, and- I knew it wasn't going to make the TV show. Like I was, yeah. I, I know, I know. I asked you to watch it, Becky. Maybe I think maybe Emily, and it, it didn't happen. So um, yeah, it was. It's. I will say that it's nice to keep it for the podcast because we'll get a full half hour of me just <sighs> rambling about mouse hunt. Yeah. I think that the nineteen we one of our years is nineteen ninety seven, and that's a pretty killer streak. Yeah. All of those are just. I think it's just because it's our age. That was kind of a time, but it's like a, just a bunch of blockbusters and crazy movies that are fun to it's revisit. also the first year that I felt like I was really watching adult mm-hmm. movies, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's just so much good stuff. There's so much good stuff. I'm really stoked for season three. Thank you for mm-hmm. uh, putting it together with me, guys, because it's no going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> All right. So, Alicia, once again, thank you so much for your time in season two. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Becky. If anyone has a bootleg copy of the pilot for L.A. Nights, the aforementioned... <laughs> Was that what it was called, Cam? L.A. Nights? Oh, no. Uh, City of Angels. Oh, shit. City of Angels. <laughs> oh, you could probably just find it. There was a season of it. Oh, it actually happened? It happened. It's just one season. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go offline for about a week. <laughs> no one, <laughs> no one yeah. contacted me. Tell us how it is. Tell us what went okay. wrong. Probably probably racism. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say it's probably racism. And Cam Maitland, thank you again, as always. Thank you. I feel like I just need to now go watch Pina again and make up for my sins. <laughs> I will send you a curated list of experimental dance movies, and you will watch every single I, I'm one. I'm good. I'm good. If, as long as there's no motorcycles, I'm fine. <laughs> that's all you need. All right, listeners, that's just about everything for season two. So you can join us again in a couple weeks for season three, and we're going to have a very excellent Shocktober in 1971 to start. Man, oh man, I love 70s horror movies. They're just so weird. And if you haven't already, remember to hit that follow button on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on so that you'll know when season three drops, you'll get that notification. Once again, take care out there and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. 
Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite on demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.